all of our work, we think about what is that systemic root of why things are the way they are. We're deeply interested in how the person creates the place and not the other way around. Welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today we're introducing the first in our series of digital remote interviews in collaboration with Black Journal. We have with us two team members from LA Moss, an urban design nonprofit organization founded in 2012 in Los Angeles. Led by co-executive directors Elizabeth Timmy and Helen Learn, LA Moss fosters inclusive development by working alongside community members through a multidisciplinary approach that involves engagement, public policy, and design. Their projects address a range of areas from community response to affordable housing, and we are excited to discuss these projects, among other things, with LA Moss today. Thank you guys for being on the podcast today. Thank you, we're so happy to be here. To begin, you both grew up in Los Angeles, which is a city that is historically known for its exclusionary zoning practices. What are some of the things that you learned from growing up here that you've carried into your work on design and policy, or that maybe have allowed you to root your practice more wholly in its context? I am Helen. I was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles and born to working class immigrant parents and my experience with housing here ran kind of a full spectrum. I spent the first part of my youth living in public housing near Chinatown, and then my parents managed to buy a single family home in Frogtown, a neighborhood where our office is based. But they weren't able to get a loan, and so they had to work it out with the, the owner that was selling their home and who gave a loan to my parents. And so Seeing the full range of housing from publicly subsidized housing to kind of the promise and the potential and the desire and the dream of single family housing, if you examine it out closely, there is such a history of imminent domain, of redlining, of exclusionary practices in terms of what can be built and who can it be built by. So given that context of all of our work, we think about what is that systemic root of why things are the way they are. And we really have to acknowledge that in anything we do because it's so easy to create a band-aid solution um, and without acknowledging kind of the roots of in some ways oppression that comes from exclusionary zoning practices, we're really falling short of creating long-term change. This is Elizabeth. I grew up in Los Feliz, which is an upper middle income neighborhood of Los Angeles. And I grew up in a household where there was a lot of discussions about the city, about policy, and it was all within the framework of architecture because my father was an architect. And I spent my youth really as an attachment to my parents kind of traveling and seeing a lot of different cities and coming back to Los Angeles and seeing how Los Angeles really in some ways fell short, but also had this inherent vibrancy and um, a series of communities and um, pockets of extreme kind of intimacy and place that when my parents passed away um, quite suddenly when I was 23 I um, kind of took refuge in and felt uh, a part of something larger than myself and as I um, 
grew up in my mid-20s, I started to experience what it is like to be without a safety net in, in Los Angeles and how many people who are transplants or who have moved here from another country, how vulnerable and isolating it can feel, even though there's so much inherent strength to um, the different communities of Los Angeles, how there's also so much um, lack of security, lack of planning, and lack of programming to support people without um, privilege. So when I met Helen, we had this really incredible conversation of having experiences that were very different, but having a conversation that was very similar. As a nonprofit urban design organization, your initial business model was focused around the three categories of alternative housing, small business support, and public realm improvements. So could you talk a little bit more about some of the elements of the built environment that you see these three categories improving on, or even what your practice has now kind of expanded to, if it has? I think what's important to always acknowledge is that the physical built environment really does shape kind of the individual experience, um, but without acknowledging who these individuals are, like what is their lived experience, it really falls short. So what I'm excited to see, especially in our work, how we're evolving our work is to acknowledging the built environment in some ways is the output, the artifact, the product of decisions that are made where money is being invested. And for our organization, when we think about our three programs that you've outlined, it's always about the who. Our affordable alternative housing is thinking about how can it be affordably rented? How can we actually build equity for low to moderate income homeowners? Our small business program has a physical design built element to it, but it's about not just any business owner, it's about mom and pop, immigrant family businesses that are struggling to survive and how can we actually celebrate the assets that they have so that they continue to serve the community. Public realm, you know, there is a lot of focus on improving and actually increasing public transit use. And for us, it's not about trying to increase ridership, but it's supporting people who have no choice but to take transit to walk. Um, and what is that built environment? How does that reflect the inequity of our landscape? And if you just look at park space, you can see that the poorest neighborhoods have the least open space. For us, focusing on working class communities of color is where uh, we want to spend our time, given the history of exclusion, has it so that um, wealthier, educated individuals a benefit from the best of all these elements, housing and local economy and the public realm. From the professional seat of things, we were really interested in this alternative scale of community development that's at the neighborhood scale. And so we saw all of these things as being kind of missing components to a conversation around investment and being place-based and really wanting to support the areas in which community development or larger scale government funding or even municipal projects haven't um, really looked at because it hasn't seemed like something that would have enough quote unquote impact. And we see those projects as incredibly impactful and we're deeply interested in how the person creates the place and not the other way around. To address this a little bit, you talked about the community scale in your work. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, you've pivoted a lot of your operations to the Northeast LA community response in an effort to connect residents to immediate resources 
including groceries, activities, face masks, and other necessities. Can you talk a little bit about the process of creating this community response and how that relates to some of the work you've already been doing? In the past couple of years, we've been working throughout LA, but our our backyard has always been Northeast LA and we've had the opportunity to work on small projects here and there. Um, but when the pandemic started, there was just so much that we had to adjust to. So for us, I think the biggest thing was that this program that we created was co-created in partnership with community leaders, David De La Torre and Ceci Dominguez. They both led community organizations in our neighborhood and they were already doing what a lot of neighbors do when they support one another, checking in, calling, seeing how they can be of service. And what we did was we supported those leaders in an infrastructure that made it easier, that increased resources, that problem solved, that leverage all the volunteers in our network that was interested in sharing their time and their resources. So what resulted from the Northeast LA community response was that we trained almost 200 volunteers to call as many neighbors as we can get a hold of. And we had a three month operation that was part social services in the sense that we deployed $20,000 of cash assistance to the most vulnerable of our neighbors. There were so many laws and policies and programs that were constantly changing and being created. So we wanted to make sure that our neighbors had access to those resources. And the reality is that given that many of the families that reached out to us are undocumented or working class families, they were struggling before COVID and this really heightened the inequity. So for us, providing food and face masks and activity kits was just a way to be able to help out and we were so lucky to have so many organizations and partners that wanted to support the effort. We responded to a need that was clearly articulated to us, and we designed a program that was iterative, that changed all the time to adapt to what we were hearing. And we wanted to honor the lived experiences of our neighbors. And what was wonderful was that we were already looking uh, and planning to be more place-based, to be more focused on responding to needs identified by community members rather than identified by elected officials and government agencies. So this was a, a way for us to take the expertise that we've accumulated the last couple of years and to work by the values that Elizabeth and I started the organization with seven years ago. And we learned so much. We felt so privileged to be able to earn the trust of community members and to just continue building on that because I think this has been the first phase in a very deep listening of what we're going to have to continue to do if we are going to continue being um, a partner to elevate the agency and contribute to neighborhood resilience. You know, it's been interesting. We have been reached out to by journalists who cover architecture and architects' response to COVID and supporting communities that they're in. And it never occurred to us that architecture was something that was the thing we would be supporting people with. Getting to Helen's point around deep listening and the iterative process we went through, we came to the table with a level of sincere interest in what everyone needed and a commitment to meeting every other day as a team and whoever was able to be on the call or whoever was able to show up showed up but we didn't, didn't want anything to stand in the way of our ability to address people's needs as they were emerging. And there was no preconceived notion of what that was gonna be. 
Um, and it was really wonderful to pivot in a way where we were previously building the capacity of the city or a council office and instead being able to take some of that deep listening we had already been doing in the community and use that capacity building towards a community identified need as Helen outlined. And so, you know, organizing resources, implementing, creating systems, all of that stuff is stuff we did in our backyard homes program, for instance, or with some of our public realm work or our small business support. But in this instance, it was very deeply rewarding for all of us because it was the community in the driver's seat. And so when you were discussing the community response, you talked a little bit about how it's really you set it up so it could be kind of an iterative program and it could continually change to meet people's different needs. Do you see, how do you see this evolving into a more sustained effort over the years? Or do you think this could have a, an impact on how you operate as an organization? One of the hardest things that we did was after three months, we ended the operation as we designed it. But the needs are still there. We realized that we had uh, designed for immediate community response, but as COVID is going to continue being around, it means that there's going to be a really long road to recovery. So for us, what is important is thinking about, well, how can we think about how to do work that is not just transactional, but actually changes the system that's transformative, that isn't in some ways charity for a week or for a month, but that we can really have community members have the agency to shape their economics because that is actually the root of a lot of the food insecurity that we're seeing. And so this is, I would say, the beginning of a longer journey of listening because it's easy for us to create very complex programs, which we have done. And, you know, in this instance, we created a program in three months that we think was really meaningful and we learned a lot. And I think now what we can do is think about, well, what else can we be doing that tackles some of those root systems, knowing that the recovery is going to be really long and it's going to be tough for many families, especially since many are in debt, unsure about their housing, not sure when they can return to their jobs. And for a lot of undocumented families, not being able to tap into unemployment or the stimulus check. And so there's so much uncertainty with schools not going back into session and many families deciding, are they going to try to work or decide who's going to take care of their children? So as we continue to incorporate and internalize and acknowledge those lived experiences and those realities of our neighbors, I think the sustained effort that we're going to embark in over the years will have to be part transactional and band-aid in short term because there, there is still a value in that, but that we also want it to connect to the system and for it to be long-term, for it to transform the way things are done. And there's um, you know, a lot of possibility in that during this time. For us, we're also seeing this and talking about it internally as not years, but six to eight weeks. We're in this world now where we can't plan beyond eight weeks. And so as a team, we may start up against something very similar to what we had in the fall when COVID began our community response, and we might not. We're continuing to have a smaller food program, but ultimately we don't think of this as a mutual aid effort. We see it as us all coming together to create the seedlings during this time of extreme instability and unknown, where there's going to be deeper investment and programs that come out of our ability to be in dialogue and at the service of our community. So 
And we've also reacted to the idea that this is a mutual aid project that we are invested in. It's us responding to this emerging new time frame under which everyone's living and communities of color are uh, disproportionately affected by. When you're talking about that, it seems like from my understanding that you're on creating more of an infrastructure that can have implications for the built environment and people and communities down the road many years. The Backyard Homes Project is another one of those programs where you're kind of creating an infrastructure for affordable housing in LA. So you've done research on accessory dwelling units, ADUs. Could you just talk a little bit about how your research on ADUs has really helped the Backyard Homes Project operate and be set up as a program that allows existing homeowners to provide affordable housing for other renters? Our Backyard Homes Project was in some ways a three years in the making where we design and built the city's pilot ADU project. And from that, we also spent a year doing research in a traditional sense where we tried to understand the field of what it meant to build an accessory dwelling unit, an ADU that is affordably rented. And so that element uh, meant that we had to understand what was the possibilities, what were the challenges, what were the gaps with financing, with policy, with design and building, with construction costs, and what it meant for a homeowner who may not be thinking about uh, building an ADU for it to be rent affordably. So for us, what we did was we kind of understood the landscape of all those players I mentioned, but more importantly, we talked to over 100 homeowners throughout Los Angeles, mostly parts of Los Angeles that are working class, where there's a real opportunity to embed kind of equity, not just for homeowners, but for renters. And when we chatted with those 100 homeowners in form of focus groups and meetings and individual conversations, what we learned were the challenges that the average homeowner face in embarking in such a journey. So the result of what we heard from those homeowners and what we understood from the field was our Backyard Homes project, which, which in some ways is a one-stop shop that helps average homeowners become providers of affordable housing. And what we um, offered in the program were all these elements, the new financing product, landlord training, tenant matching, helping with uh, and promising a clarity on design and building, um, a price point that is transparent up front. And for us, all that came from understanding kind of homeowner challenges and also their hopes for their property. From the architecture perspective, we saw the value of the design being able to do this two-part thing, which is what is really cool about design is the kind of ideals and the pragmatism. And we saw that there was the ability to use design as a conduit for storytelling, but also as this real brass tacks way to be problem solving around how to do backyard homes affordably that would be ultimately Section 8 rental units. And we saw the vision part of it and the storytelling part of it as an opportunity for a vision for inclusive housing, or what does it look like when there's a backyard home that is at the service of keeping people in their neighborhoods or providing an alternative form of affordability. So what does that look like? What is the experience of the tenant walking through someone's backyard? How can we really decouple the idea that the backyard is a private space? How can we look at it in relationship to the front 
And how can all of that be distilled and representative in the visual and design of the home? Also understanding that Los Angeles has this great multiplicity of vernaculars and language relative to the single family home. And there was a time when we were doing a fantastic job building housing in the 1920s and 30s. And that was really before there was this idea around setbacks and suburbia and R1. There was this notion that we had public transit and we had a very different city. So that was really exciting. And coming from the architecture background, really a, a wonderful moment in my personal career to be able to speak to that. But from the problem solving perspective, ADUs are so different. Every ADU has this ability to really meet an identified need for a population that previously hasn't been designed for in housing. So whether it's uh, ADUs that are accessible around mobility uh, impairment or someone who is experiencing PTSD or someone who might be a senior. And for us, the Section 8 housing was the design problem that we went after the prototypes in creating. And so that in and of itself was, was wonderful and nice because we were doing things like off-the-shelf materials like linoleum coupled with IKEA, which are somewhat prefab uh, cabinetry systems that could reinforce the storytelling but also be really efficient and on a lower price point than many other products that developers and contractors are using. And I, I would say to put it in context, these days, for those who are not familiar with the affordable housing industry, the industry itself focuses on mixed use, often high density affordable housing projects that take many years, that cost at least half a million per unit. And what we wanted to do was say, let's focus on a system for affordable housing for single family homes. And that, you know, is not something new. It's actually informally been happening. There's a lot of naturally occurring affordable single family homes, and there are a lot of unpermitted um, ADUs that have been around for decades. And it's only now that policy makes it possible. So what we wanted to do was say, let's figure out how to formalize what's already happening and provide a level of attention and detail that lifts up the possibility of ADUs that are designed not just beautifully, but contextually and affordably. And that very notion has so many complexities to it that what you end up seeing in our program is a new financial product. <laughs> yeah, and it gets, but it does get back to this conversation Helen and I had when we first met seven years ago around there being these community-led models of development that were really not seen by the city of Los Angeles and policed or not encouraged at the very least. So it gets back to this conversation we've been having and we've been really wonderful in that our team also are peers to us and being able to have that and, and discuss what are models like the ADU that we can support and be in dialogue with. To Elizabeth's point, it would be very different if we were the developers kind of figuring out the financing, acquiring the property. But what we're working with is for each homeowner that we work with, every homeowner has their own story, their finances, their hopes and dreams for the property, what they want to do with the ADU, uh, why they're participating in our program. And all that is a constant kind of puzzle. Um, and to have that alignment between financially this investment penciling out and the equity that's necessary that has 
traditionally been excluded for in the banking industry is something that you know even though we created a new financial product it's not perfect it only works for right now half of our homeowners and to just acknowledge that that kind of um, disconnect between all these elements of property finances design and working with homeowners who are on the moderate end of low to moderate income homeowners it's a big investment and traditionally housing like this is done by developers but to have an individual average homeowner be in the driver's seat means a lot more problem solving, bringing together of really different resources. So to Elizabeth's point, though we had this vision that we would do outreach and this would be done in a year, uh, we're in our second or so year and hopefully in a year we'll have greater clarity on what does it mean? How do we continue, not this program, but this notion of single family lots being a source of affordable housing. Today we've been talking a lot about how most of your projects, if not all of them, are very place-based. You do actively try to in include the voices of community members, but just thinking about that, how do you work to ensure that your interventions really benefit longtime residents rather than maybe contributing to any sort of gentrification in these neighborhoods? Because that is often something to consider when doing this kind of work, I think. That's a great question. And that's like the question that we're constantly grappling with. For our affordable housing program, there were a lot of homeowners who wanted us to work with them, but they actually had existing tenants in their garage. And if they were to participate, they would have to get rid of their tenants um, in order to design and build an ADU. And in those instances, we're like, no, we, won't, we can't work with you because for us, we don't want to displace residents. We don't want to displace small businesses. In our small business work, I think as we think about how do we evolve the program, we want to think about how can we support small businesses that are serving communities of color, that their products and services are affordable and contextual and culturally appropriate. And in some ways, having community members choose, like, these are, these are the businesses that serve us. And how do we support those businesses versus businesses that may not be as uh, culturally appropriate, maybe out of the price point of long-term residents? So there's a choice that we can make in how we support and who we choose to support. And that's something we're constantly thinking about. And, you know, Elizabeth mentioned our pivot to being community-based. Our board a few weeks ago adopted our new mission and vision statement, which really has been many years in the making which is all the lessons we've learned about how we've worked and who we're working for. And so rather than starting with the tools of our, our disciplines as urban planners and policymakers and designers, um, it's really about first and foremost serving working class communities of color. You know, building off of the Northeast LA community response, it means that how we do our work, we're centering people who often are longtime residents and Long-time residents, no, not every long-time resident, because there are long-time residents that are um, middle income, and um, they're going to be okay. So for us, it's actually being particular about long-term residents that are working class, who may be renters, who might be uh, vulnerable to being displaced, especially once our eviction moratorium is lifted. So we don't know what that work will be, and the conversation about gentrification displacement is going to be very different in some ways it's going to be heightened it's going to be exacerbated and the solutions and the approach that uh, we're going to be taking will likely be very different than what the traditional fields of community development has done in the past we have a really big issue in that 
right now, currently along the west coast of America, there's social unrest in cities across Portland and Los Angeles and Seattle. And it's really a fight. It began as a fight for, for you know, Black Lives Matter and justice, but it's now a fight for, for the right to public space and the right for people to be in space. And we have a really big issue also parallel as architects in that design is often seen as a proxy for gentrification and colonialism. And historically, it's been something that's been done by people for people and not in dialogue and not representative of a conversation or a distillation of values. And we have a really big question to ask ourselves professionally, and that is what business are we in? Are we in the business of representing and supporting others who don't have this expertise, but really want to have a voice and speak that voice to power? There are a lot of things that the design profession as a whole needs to be considering a lot more and I really appreciate the work that y'all are doing and I'll be interested to see where it evolves in the next few years and along the line. Thank you so much for having us. It was a treat to talk with you. For more information on current LA Moss projects, visit their website at mas.la. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platforms to keep up with new releases as part of our series of Plat Journal. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.